Amen. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles tonight to Galatians chapter 3. I want to teach on one of the, the um, favorite things, one of my favorite things relative to the um, subject of healing, this being healing school. And we want to continue along these, uh, these lines as we have since we started healing school. But uh, Galatians 3 verses 13 and 14, we want to start there. Hopefully these are very familiar scriptures to you. If they're not, they should be. Let me encourage you to, to underline those, highlight those, do whatever you need to do to make them stand out and uh, make them a part of your heart. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Please notice this is past tense. Christ has, not going to, he has done something. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us, it tells us how. Being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now, the hanging on a tree is a, um, uh, was fulfilled by Jesus Hanging on the cross. Jesus died the death that he died in order to fulfill prophecy. He had to die the death on the cross. He couldn't have been just beaten to death. And, and things to uh, have worked in the same way or in the way that they were intended to. It had to be the crucifixion. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Being made a curse for us. For it is written. Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Now why did he do that? Why did he redeem us? Two reasons. Two things are identified in verse 14. Number one. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. Or through Jesus Christ rather. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. Two parts of the blessing of Abraham. Two parts of what God had promised Abraham. One was natural provision and earthly blessings. That included uh, uh, children. That included descendants. The star, the, uh, uh, his seed would be as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore and so, so on and so forth. Uh, God made Abraham rich. He was very rich in silver and cattle and gold. That's part of the natural blessings. All of the things that God uh, told him and that we see identified in Scripture, uh, God said, I'll be with you in every situation. And he was. Uh, Abraham laid hands on the sick and the sick were healed. He had supernatural power, healing power flowing through him even in old covenant days. Uh, well, from the time that God uh, appeared to him when it was necessary. The, all those are, are uh, a part of the promise of Abraham that came on the Gentiles. In other words, all the natural blessings that were available to the Jews throughout the Old Testament is a part of Abraham's blessing that belongs to you through Jesus Christ. How many of you ever had uh, been reading in the Old Testament and the, the devil will speak to you? You see something really good and the devil will speak to you and say, well, that just belongs to the Jews. Well, guess what? If it belonged to the Jews then, then it belongs to you now. Because the only reason it belonged to the Jews then under the Old Covenant is because of the blessing of Abraham. It wasn't the blessing of the Jews, it was the blessing of Abraham. Now the Bible says that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law for this purpose. Two reasons, two things. Point number one is so that the natural blessings that are identified in the old covenant that were available to the Jews and for the Jews, that they might be available to you now. The second thing that he redeemed us for is really the important thing uh, as far as eternity is concerned, and that is that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, what does that mean? A part of God's promise to Abraham was the natural blessings that we've just talked about. But then also, God identified that because Abraham, you remember when Abraham was commanded to offer Isaac on the altar? God never told him to kill him. He said, offer Isaac as a sacrifice. Abraham did exactly what God promised him to do, or he did exactly what God instructed him to do. Came to the very last moment, didn't know how it was going to work, but if God needed to raise Isaac from the dead so that he would keep his promise, he would. Abraham was fully persuaded. He, as a matter of fact, when they left the, uh, the donkeys and the, the servants and everything, they said, where are you going? He said, we're going up to the top of the hill, offer a sacrifice, and we'll be back. Not I'll be back. Isaac, you know, too bad for him. We'll be back. He knew that some way or another, Isaac had to live. Well, God said, as a result of that, God said, now that I know that you won't withhold your only son, I won't withhold mine. And all the things that the prophets said, Ezekiel chapter 36, where God said, I'll sprinkle clean water upon you and we'll cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. A new heart will I place within you. A new spirit will I give you. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and so forth. All of those promises that came through the prophets were as the result of one and only one thing. And that is the promise of the spirit that God made to Abraham as a result of Abraham's actions. 
two parts to what God promised Abraham. One had to do with his natural life. The other had to do with eternity. And the Bible says, let me read it again, Christ has redeemed us, already done, has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, for this purpose, verse 14, that or so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, number one, number two, and that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, the devil will try to talk you out of the natural part. The devil will try to tell you, well, you know, it's, the important thing is that you're saved. Well, if the devil thinks that being saved is so important, why did he work so hard to keep you from getting there? Why does he throw so many roadblocks up in people's path to keep them from receiving? The Bible says that he blinds people's minds so that they don't receive the light of the glorious gospel. But just as soon as you get saved, man, he takes a 180. It's like, okay, you're in. But now you can't expect God to care about natural things because spiritual things are so much more important. Spiritual things is what God was after all along. And now that you're in Christ, you've got an eternal life waiting for you once you get, from, get out of this world and into heaven. But you can't really expect God to do anything for you while you're here. He starts a new argument every time you take ground. He doesn't, he doesn't want to give up an inch. But as soon as you take something by faith, he starts a, a whole new argument, a whole new position and says... That's as far as you can expect to go. He'll fight you every inch of the way. But that's what the Bible says Jesus redeemed you from the curse of the law for. Both spiritual things and natural things. Both things having to do with eternity. And when I'm talking about eternity, I'm not just talking about when you get to heaven. I'm talking about spiritual blessings that are available to us now. Authority that you have through Christ Jesus. Because you're part of the family of God. And so forth. I'm talking about spiritual life. As well as natural life and natural blessings and natural benefits. Now the word redeemed, I like this word. If you look it up in the, uh, in the English or the Greek concordance, you'll find out that this Greek word means to ransom, to rescue, or to buy out from. Christ has bought us from the curse of the law. Christ has ransomed us from the curse of the law. Christ has rescued us from the curse of the law. Because he was made a curse for us. That's what it means. It carries. We, the only time that I know of that we ever even use the word ransom. Is in connection with the kidnapping. I, I've never heard of the word. Uh, at least I'm not. I don't recall. The word ever used in any other way. Other than outside of the Bible. Except for a kidnapping situation. Now we all know how kidnapping works. At least from what we've seen in TV shows. And, and that kind of stuff. Sometimes there, you know, in, in times past, there have been events that maybe we kept up with in the newspaper as they occurred or whatever. Usually it's where somebody takes a rich person's family member, usually a young person, and they demand money to return or release the loved one. And when the money is paid, the money is caught, the money that is paid is called a ransom. And ideally, the thought is, if the person cares about the loved one enough, they'll pay the ransom. The amount of money that's being demanded so that their loved one is released. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But in Jesus' case, it was totally different. There was no price that was demanded. The devil had us in bondage because of spiritual death. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, man as a whole, mankind as a whole, came in bondage to spiritual death. We were trapped or taken captive. From something that we could not get away from on, on our own. And instead of the devil demanding a price for us. There was a prisoner exchange. The price that the devil demanded. Was not money. It was not a monetary thing. It was not a natural thing. The price that the devil demanded. The only price that could change the situation. Was for God's son to take our place. So mankind was released and God's son was punished but that was part of god's plan the devil thought he had jesus on the cross the devil thought he had won first he had all of mankind in bondage and now he's trapped the son of god and he knew exactly what the bible said he knew that jesus dying on the cross would be making himself a curse so that meant as far as the devil's concerned i've trapped him too 
He saw no plan for redemption. He saw no exchange taking place from that standpoint of what Jesus would purchase for us or what Jesus would win for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. He just thought, just as he captured Adam, God's first son, now he's captured Jesus, the son of God in the flesh. The devil thought he had it made. But when the power of God came back upon Jesus, Jesus was made a curse. That's why it was necessary for him to die the death that he died. When the power of God came back upon Jesus, Jesus was raised from the dead, stripped the devil of his power. And as a result of stripping the devil from his power, now all mankind has been set free. Let me read this verse, uh, verse 13 from the message. I, uh, some things I like about the message, it's not a translation. It's a paraphrase. And so some of it is, is interesting and some of it, uh, I like some of it, but, but you really have to pick and choose. But this is good. Listen to this. Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating, cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Do you remember the scripture that says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? That's what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse and at the same time dissolved the curse. You know the important thought there? There is no curse of the law any longer. Christ redeemed you. He rescued you. As far as you're concerned, now don't get me wrong, there is a curse of the law in the earth. But as far as you're concerned, because you're in Christ Jesus, there's no curse of the law for you. Notice verse 29 of Galatians chapter 3. And if you be Christ, how many of you are Christ? How many of you belong to him? You made him the Lord of your life. Well, he's talking to you then. And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What promise? Promises in verse 18 or verse 14, excuse me. The promises of verse 14 having to do with natural blessings and spiritual blessings too. If you're Christ. Now, whenever the Bible talks about the curse of the law, actually, I guess I better back up and make this statement. If you ask most Christians, what are we redeemed from? Most Christians will say sin. And that's only part of the story. I mean, there's an element of truth there. We are redeemed from sin. We're rescued from sin. But not usually in the way that they think. The Bible says not that we're redeemed from sin. Specifically, the Bible says we're redeemed from spiritual death. Most Christians don't know the difference between sin and spiritual death. They think sin is all-inclusive, and it's not. Spiritual death is the all-inclusive term. We're redeemed from spiritual death, but spiritual death is represented in the Old Testament as the curse of the law. The reason it's represented in the Old Testament as the curse of the law is because there was no promise of the Spirit that could be received. There was nothing under the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, that could make man right with God outside of a sacrifice. There had to be a blood sacrifice made for an atonement, a covering over of sin. But that didn't make you right with God. That just enabled God the opportunity to look on you as, uh, according to the promise of righteousness, not as if you were righteous. That's why they had to keep making it over and over and over again. So when the Bible talks about the curse of the law, there's only two things that the law could mean. One is the Ten Commandments. Well, there's nothing in the Ten Commandments about the curse of the law. So it can't be talking about that. The only other thing that the law could mean in Scripture is the first five books of the Bible or the law of Moses. The law of Moses, the entirety of the law of Moses is contained in the first five books of the Bible. Now, what does the Bible say about the curse of the law in those first five books? Turn with me to Deuteronomy 28. There's a lot of different places we could look, but here is the most concise listing of what is identified in Scripture as the curse of the law. Here's Moses giving his farewell speech. Most of the book of Deuteronomy is Moses' farewell speech to the children of Israel. He knows he's going off the scene. He's, uh, uh, he's messed up on God's type. He was supposed to strike the rock the first time and water come out, which was a type of Jesus being smitten or stricken of God on the cross. And, uh, and living water came forth. The second time was a type or a, uh, an illustration that God was trying to make to show how that living water comes once you've received Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so Moses was supposed to speak to the rock, but he got mad at the people and hit the rock the second time. And as a result, God said, you messed up my type. You messed up my illustration, so you can't go into the promised land. 
even though living water came forth, that's not the way you receive it. Unfortunately, too many Christians seem to want God to do something along those lines. They're waiting for Jesus to do something else beyond what he's already done when they don't realize the way to partake of the living water or the blessings of redemption that Jesus has already accomplished is through the spoken word. That's why that type, that picture was so important. So Moses knows he's not going into the promised land. Joshua's going to take his place. And so Moses is given a farewell speech. Now think about Moses in his situation. He's been walking with these people in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience. Most of the adults, everybody from age 25 and up, I believe, if I remember correctly, has, has died and gone off the scene at this point in time. But he's watched these kids grow up being taught of their parents how to disbelieve and, and uh, doubt God. And so he spends a lot of time warning them. He gives them a lot of warnings. He gives them a lot of uh, information about what the promised land is going to be and the blessings of God that will come because it is a land that flows with milk and honey and so forth. But he concludes his farewell speech with a strict and stern warning. And notice what that warning includes. Verse 15. The first part of the chapter is the blessings of obedience to God. Verse 15 starts with the curses. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all of his commandments and his statutes, which I command thee this day. Now, what is he talking about, command thee this day? He means all the commandments that are in place at that point in time. Moses' last days with them. 630 commandments. 630 laws. If you won't keep 630 laws that God has given me to give you, Then all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake you. Notice it didn't say some of these curses. It said all of these curses. In other words, it's an all or nothing thing. You're either all in or you're out. It's total obedience, total commitment to God. Or the whole of the curses are yours. Verse 16, curses shalt thou be in the city and curses shalt thou be in the field. You can't get away from the curse no matter where you live. Curses shall be your basket and your store. Doesn't matter what your work is. You can't escape the curse that way. Curses shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your land, the increase of your kind and the flocks of your sheep. Not just your, the curse upon you or your life, the curse upon everything you own. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. Might as well stay in bed. Because this curse is going to come on you. These curses, all these curses are going to come on you and overtake you. Now remember, this is the curse that Jesus dissolved. So don't let the devil condemn you when you see this stuff and say, Oh, well, that's why things are going wrong for me. There is no curse of the law for those that are in Christ Jesus. If anything, we ought to be rejoicing that we're not living then. No wonder the Bible says in Hebrews 8, 6, we have a better covenant established upon better promises. Their covenant was obey or else. Our covenant is in Christ Jesus, we get to walk according to the Spirit. There is no or else. Verse 20. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke, and in all thou settest thine hand unto for to do, until thou be destroyed and until thou perish quickly because of the wickedness of thy doings, whereby thou hast forsaken me. Please notice the curse is you will be destroyed because you turned away from me. It's not the other way around. God decides to turn away from you. Nope. Verse 21, the Lord shall make the pestilence cleave unto thee until he has consumed thee from off of the land, whether thou goest to possess it. The Lord shall smite thee with a consumption and with a fever and with an inflammation and with an extreme burning and with the sword and with blasting and with mildew and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. Verse 20, uh, well, let's just keep reading. And thy heaven that is over thy head shall be brass and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. Please notice the curse of the law is God will not hear your prayer. That curse doesn't exist for you. That curse cannot exist for the child of God. 
How many times has the devil told us that the reason our prayers aren't answered is because God's not hearing us because we've messed up? Impossible. That's the curse of the law. Jesus dissolved that curse. Verse 27, the Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt and with emeroids and with the scab and with the itch whereof thou canst not be healed. The Lord shall smite thee with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. And thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness. And thou shalt not prosper in thy ways. And thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore. And no man shall save thee. He's talking about incurable and unchangeable situations. How many times does the devil tell you that your situation is unchangeable? It'll never change. It'll never be any different. Maybe incurable. No such thing for you. Verse 35, the Lord shall smite thee in the knees and in the legs with a sore botch that cannot be healed from the top of thy foot, or the sole of thy foot, excuse me, until the top of thy head. Skip down with me to verse 58. We're cherry picking the, the scriptures concerning healing and sickness. Verse 58, if thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law. So this is the curse of the law, isn't it? Clearly, it's identified as the curse of the law. If thou wilt not obey all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear the glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful. Wonderful not in the sense of awesome, great. Wonderful meaning you've got to be kidding. I've never seen anything like this before in my life. And the plagues of thy seed, your children, even great plagues and of sore continuance and sore sicknesses and of long continuance. How many times do people talk about the curse coming upon your children? There's no such thing for the believer. Yeah, well, diseases, this heart trouble or whatever it is runs in my family. Not in the family of God. There is no genetic disposition that cannot be changed by the life of God. Yeah, well, the doctor says our family is susceptible to cancer. Which family? You living according to your natural family? Or are you living according to the family of God? The family of God is not disposed to cancer or anything else. There is no genetic disposition that cannot be overcome literally that has not been overcome by the life of God through Jesus' sacrifice. Then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful and the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues and of long continuance and sore sicknesses and of long continuance. Notice he talks about bad things for a long, long time. Moreover, he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt, which thou wast afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. Also, every sickness. Everybody say every. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in this book of the law or in the book of this law, them will the Lord bring upon thee until thou be destroyed. Now, if you break them apart, there's 13 different uh, sicknesses or diseases that are identified in the scriptures that we just read. The, I don't know how many it is, 10 or 12, whatever it is, scriptures. There are 13 different diseases that are identified. Some of those diseases are categories, like, for example, where it talks about a fever. That would include typhoid fever or, or scarlet fever or anything like that, a category of, uh, of uh, fevers and so forth. So there are 13 specific things identified. But then Moses goes even further in speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And he said, now, don't think it's just 13 things that you've got to look out for. If you want to obey God and obey the commandments that God has given you, then every sickness and every disease that's not written in here will be a part of the curse that comes on you too. Now, I have to stop here. I'm not going to take time as we've done in the past. I'm not going to take time to turn to certain scriptures, but you need to know something. And that is this. Uh, Dr. Robert Young, how many of you have heard, it's strong analytical concordance is more popular nowadays. But in days gone by, Young's analytical concordance was the most popular um, concordance and research tool of its day 
for the last, that hasn't been the case for the last uh, probably 30 years, 30, 40 years maybe. But Dr. Young was a, the foremost uh, Greek scholar, Greek and Hebrew scholar in his day. And he wrote a book. It's, uh, if you've got um, uh, Young's Analytical Concordance, in the notes there's a, a, a condensed um, version, summary, whatever. I don't know how to call it or what to identify it as. But in the notes in his uh, Analytical Concordance, there's a, a summary of some of the things I'm going to tell you about. But he wrote a separate book that was called Hints to Bible Interpretation. It's long since been out of print. Every time I talk about this, people go looking for it for me and they can't find it. And they, they find this little summary, this little one-page thing in the concordance. And they say, Pastor Mike, have, uh, have you seen this? Well, yes, I've seen this. I've read it a thousand times. But it's not. It's a separate book. And I, I haven't been able to find it. And I don't know if it, it's findable. But anyway, the, the same truth is available, uh, just not in as great of description or, or uh, explanation in the concordance, in the notes of his concordance. And here's what he says. And you can, you can search this out on the Internet for yourself. Uh, just, you know, Google certain things and, and you'll get to some of the information. Um, Present-day scholars, uh, Greek scholars, Greek and Hebrew scholars identify the same thing. I say, he was saying Greek and Hebrew. This was, uh, it would be the Hebrew because it's the Old Testament. But present-day scholars will agree that this is true as well. But anyway, here's what Dr. Young said about the, uh, about the Hebrew language. He said the King James translation particularly is a transliteration. Now, the word may not mean anything to you, but here you need to know what that means for the sake of discussion. And that is a transliteration is not just a translation that expresses the thought that's being written in the Hebrew language. It's as close to a word-for-word translation as possible. That's why you'll find that other translations will be either shorter or longer because it's uh, most of the time longer because the Hebrew language is a lot, lot richer than the English language is. But the translators translating into the English translated as a result of the word-for-word translation or transliteration. They put in the causative sense what is in the Hebrew language a permissive verb. Now, this is not, you check this out for yourself, and I invite you to do so. This is not some new thing that only Word of Faith people have got a hold of. This is just a fact. That's just the way the language works. He uses certain examples in both the notes, but then uh, expanded to a greater degree in the out-of-print book, Hence to Bible Interpretation. And he uses other scriptures, scriptures away from, but some included in the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy, where the translators put it in the causative sense, like the Lord will make your plagues wonderful. The Lord will send vexation upon you and so forth. That's really should be more accurately translated. The Lord will allow these things. Now, here's why the Lord allows them. Because the person in the individual disobeyed God and turned away from him. Do you remember where we started? In verse 15, I think it was. He said, it shall come to pass if thou wilt not hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do as all of his commandments and his statutes, which I commanded thee, thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. Notice the, the, the active agent is the individual, not God. Now, that doesn't satisfy some people, but let me give you a couple of examples. Isaiah 45, verse 17. Well, I said I wasn't going to turn to him, but I'm going to need to because I want to make sure that I, I don't quote them, misquote them, or just get part of it right. Isaiah 45, 17 is a good one to start with. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Maybe they'll throw it up on the screen for you. But let me read it to you. Here's the King James translation. I form the light, God speaking first person. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Can I ask you a question? Did God create evil? How can God require you to resist evil if it's part of his creation? Some people, bless their hearts, get feeling sorry for the devil. Because they think God's pulling the strings on everything and he was just doing what, what God planned and purposed for him to do, predestined and preordained for him to do from the beginning. That's hogwash. The Bible says that everything was perfect in God's creation way before he made Adam and Eve. That everything was perfect in God's creation until iniquity was found in Satan or Lucifer. God didn't put it there. 
Satan originated that. And he did it through pride. It was the pride of his own heart that caused evil to be created. That was the origin of evil. God didn't make him that way. Satan didn't have any greater disposition to evil than any of the other angels in his day or in his, uh, under that creation. No difference whatsoever. God didn't make something special in him that would turn into evil. Satan originated it in and of himself. Now, this word create has two meanings in the Hebrew. You can look this up for yourself. It means two things. It means either to make or it means to cut down. Now, here's the problem with translating from the Hebrew to the English. Which one does the translator use? Both meanings are absolutely accurate. Which one is it? Let's read it both ways. I form the light and create darkness. That means I either made the darkness. God's saying I either made the darkness or I cut down the darkness. Well, which one's he talking about? Look at the creation of the earth that Adam and Eve was in. God said, let there be light. Darkness covered the face of the earth. And God said, let there be light. What happened to the darkness when God spoke light be? Darkness was cut down. Darkness fleed away. Or fled away, I guess. Darkness had to flee. So if we use the Bible as the interpretation, which in some cases the translators didn't do, and please understand, you know more about the Bible than the translators did. And the reason I say that is because the Bible is progressive revelation. We know more because the Bible has been, more of the Bible has been revealed by the Holy Ghost since the time, what, 1530 or whatever it was that King James translated this thing. So which one is it? Is God saying, I made the darkness? Well, if God made the darkness and then caused the darkness to flee away when he created light, he's working against himself. Darkness was there when God said, let there be light. The creation of light cut down the darkness. It goes further in verse 17. I make peace and create evil. Doesn't peace cut down evil? Isn't peace the answer for or the solution for evil? Well, then what's he saying? Is God saying I make peace and I make evil? Boy, I'm God. I work both sides of the street. It's not what he's saying. That's, con- that's inconsistent with the character and the nature of God with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Let me give you another one. Amos chapter 3 and verse 6. Amos chapter 3 and verse 6. Here's the King James. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? And shall there be evil in the city and the Lord has not done it? Really? Is God doing evil in the cities? If he's doing evil in the cities, how can he be just in expecting us to resist evil? Another translation, and if you'll notice in the King James, if you did look along with me, you'll notice that the word it is in italics. Anytime you see a word in the King James is italicized, it's because the translators added it. So notice what it says, literally what it says from the original It says, shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in the city and the Lord hath not done? Other translations say, and the Lord not do something about it. Well, which one's right? The King James says what it does, either because the translators, that was their understanding of the character and the nature of God and the way he operates, which is a possibility. Or they're trying to keep it so concise and so simple, making it a word-for-word translation that they didn't convey the, the proper meaning. Doesn't God do something about evil in the cities or evil wherever it arises? Well, sure he does. That's why he sent Jesus. God's not any different now that Jesus has been sent than before Jesus was sent. God has always been against evil. That's why he created a world without evil until man messed it up. Turn with me finally, and we could use many other examples, but turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Here's where David is anointed to be king when Saul has been disobedient as the king of Israel. And there was a period of time where David was God's choice to be king, but Saul kept the the position. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14. But the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord troubled him. 
Is that where evil spirits come from? It's from the Lord? If so, then every evil spirit we come in contact with, we should welcome. Come in, blessed friend. Have your way in our lives because you're from the Lord. Is that how it works? No, it's not. So you can't always trust the translation. That means, and specifically in this case, in in, uh, reference to the subject at hand tonight, where the Bible says, and the Lord shall send upon thee, it just simply says because of your disobedience, God allows these things to happen. How can God allow these curses to overtake us, to come on us and over, uh, not us, but overtake them under the old covenant, under the law of Moses? How could he allow that? Because the curse was already in operation in the earth. God's not creating some curse. He's just saying the protection of obedience to my word that keeps these things from you will through your actions be broken down so that these things shall come on you and overtake you. And not just in a little measure, but big time. I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. I'm not sure if you turned away from that or not, but let me point out another couple of things about this curse of the law. I always spend more time on this part of it than I intend to, and then I run out of time on the rest of it that I wanted to do. Deuteronomy 28, I want you to notice something. Two things, two points I want you to see. Verse 27, the Lord will smite thee, literally allow you to be smitten with the botch of Egypt. A lot of times, a lot of uh, scholars believe that the botch of Egypt is leprosy. And with the emeralds, that means hemorrhoids, and with the scab, and with the itch, where the, where the, whereof thou canst not be healed. He's talking about skin diseases. But I want you to notice something. He's talking about incurable conditions. The curse of the law, or a part of the curse of the law, that you have been redeemed from, you've been redeemed from the whole curse, but a part of that curse is incurable conditions. Another thing I want you to see is in verse 60. Moreover, he will bring, literally allow upon thee, all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid, and they shall cleave unto thee. Two things I want you to see about the curse of the law that's been dissolved that has nothing to do with you and never will have anything to do with you if you exercise your authority in Jesus. Two things I want you to see. There's no such thing as incurable with God. The second part of it, which may be closely associated depending on your situation or the way the devil deals with you or tries to, but equally important in my estimation is there is always fear attached to major sickness and disease. For example, you go to the doctor and the doctor starts talking about something that's precancerous. There's a spirit of fear that's attached to that. I don't know why doctors haven't figured that out. I don't know why a doctor doesn't say, well, you know, there's something we want to keep an eye on. Why in the world do they call it precancerous? They don't know it's going to turn into cancer. If they knew how, that it was going to turn into cancer for sure, they'd know how to stop it. Because that would mean they know what the progression of cancer is. And they don't. No doctor that's honest will tell you that they do. They just know cancer when they see it, which means if it's not cancer, they haven't seen it. So why do they talk about things? Why do they use terms? Well, I think I know, but you consider it for yourself. But why do doctors use terms that strike fear in the hearts of people? I believe it's so that they'll gain credibility so that you'll do whatever they tell you to do about it. Which in my opinion, and I'm not speaking against any doctor. Thank God for doctors. Doctors have kept most Christians alive until they can learn to believe God. I'm all for doctors. But doctors, well-meaning, intending to do the best that they can for their patients. See a solution to something or what they believe to be or perceive to be the solution to something. And they don't want to hesitate for a minute. Because time could change the situation. Time could change the severity of the situation or severity of the condition. And so they want to tackle it, attack it, and tackle the thing right off the bat. And many times, I've seen this happen over and over again, people get in a hurry because of what doctors tell them about their physical condition. They'll get in a hurry, and without taking time to read what the Bible says, find out what scriptures belong to them, find out what the Lord is speaking to their heart, pray about the thing or whatever, they get themselves into a situation that they wished down the road they'd never done. You need to understand something. Fear is very much a part of sickness. 
And fear is a spirit. Paul told Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. What's the opposite of a spirit called fear? Power, the love of God, and soundness of mind. Soundness of mind means not moved by emotions. That's a part of what you've been redeemed from. I, 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 over and over and over again, I've had people that are saying, they'll call me and they'll say, Pastor Mike, I'm, I'm going in for some tests tomorrow or next week or whenever it is. And the doctors told me that he thinks it's this. And I don't know why they never think it's something small. They always think it's the biggest and worst thing that could be. You know, it can't be a headache. It's got to be a brain tumor. You know, at least that's the way it seems. And so I've had people say, pray with me. I want you to agree with me that the doctor will give me a good report. Do you know what that says? That's the individual saying, I don't want to hear something that I'm afraid of. Pray that I won't hear something that I'm afraid of. Let me ask you a question. What is there to be afraid of if Christ really redeemed you from the curse of the law? Now, the reason I'm talking to you about it in this way is because you need to understand anything the devil can get a toehold in by making you afraid, he will bear down. But if you're not afraid of anything, he's got nothing to work against you. I've always taken the opposite approach. And I've been in the same situation. I've always taken the opposite approach. I'll always go into a medical test or something like that expecting to hear him say it's cancer. And I'll deal with it up front. And I'll just let the devil know right up front. I don't care what the doctor says. If he says it's this. If he says I've got six months to live. Who cares? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. I refuse to be afraid. See, in many cases, it's not the disease itself that's the problem. It's not the disease that you have to battle and attack. In many cases, it's the fear. My mom was in a situation like this many years ago. And when I was still living in... Uh, well, I guess we'd already started the church, but it was in the early years of the church. She had uh, been diagnosed with cancer, gone through one bout of it, and the doctors had, uh, had done a, a great job with her, but the recovery was really tough. She was believing God, and, but the recovery of this thing was really, 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 really tough. And then the doctors found that it had reoccurred. And she called me, and she was in tears, and bless her heart, just distraught over this thing. And... Um, told me what the doctor said and I said well I said you believe God the first time you can do it again and she said oh but Mike it hurts so much it was so painful and and just the whole thing and I I, I mean you gotta understand especially with a loved one somebody close to you how you'd have compassion for them in a situation like that and so I came to the point where I'd talk to her every day I'd call her every morning and I'd talk to her every day I'd try to encourage her I'd remind her of what the word said we'd talk to each other about it just I was just trying to lift her spirits and and you know do what I could to help her it's hard to, she was living in Alabama at the time, and it's kind of hard to deal with somebody cross-country in any other way than what I was doing. And, um, and one day, particularly, she was at bottom. She had hit bottom. She had been to the doctor, and the doctor had said, this, that, and the other, here's your only choice. And if you don't make a decision today, then it's going to be too late, and yada, yada, yada. You know how that stuff goes. Well, I called her. She had just gotten back from the doctor, and I called her, and she was, her spirits was, were as low as I'd ever heard out of her she's always been upbeat and positive and and so forth but man she was having a tough day and so i'm listening and, and she's saying things that she would not ordinarily say and and uh, just out of out of fear and out of her hurt and and so forth and i'm just sitting there listening I, I i know the wrong thing to do is to tell mom you can't say that you know it's not my job to be the confession police i wish other people would figure that out too but anyway I knew where she was coming from, and, and so I'm just sitting there, and I'm, I'm just kind of praying to myself just real quietly, and, and I said, Lord, you know, what am I going to do? What am I going to say to her? I, I, I can't tell her that what she's feeling is not real. What am I going to say to her? And all of a sudden, I knew something, and I'd never, I'd never thought of it before. I'd never considered it before. I'd never had the Lord. I, I don't want to say the Lord said it to me because it wasn't words, but it was an instant knowing. And I said this to her. I said, Mom, I think I've got something from the Lord. And that is this. I don't want you to worry about the sickness. I don't want you to worry about the cancer that the doctor's talking about. I believe that what we have to attack is the fear. She said, what do you mean? And so I talked to her. I said, here's the reason why you're saying what you're saying. Because you're afraid. 
If the Bible is true like you know it is. If Jesus redeemed you from the curse of the law. If Christ took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses. And with his stripes you're healed. If all those things are true. Then you know they are. Because Jesus has bailed you out once before. This very same thing. You've seen it happen. It was, it was a tough sledding. Tough, tough way to go. But you know that it's true. If those things are true like you know they are. What is there to be afraid of? Well it took a couple of days. But after a couple of days, man, she started going after the devil. She started looking for him. She conquered that fear. And from that point on, that thing just almost fell off her like magic. I learned something. I learned a lesson on that. I learned the lesson is that in some cases, the only foothold the devil has is not the physical condition, the physical symptoms. It's the fear. I don't think God included that in this verse just by accident. Moreover, he will bring upon or allow upon thee all the diseases of Egypt, which thou wast afraid of. And they shall cleave unto thee. Folks, you need to identify what it is. If you're fighting sickness, if you're standing against sickness, standing for your healing, you need to identify what is it that the devil's trying to make me afraid of. I'll do this regularly with people. They'll come up and bless their hearts. I, I don't know how to say this without sounding hard about it. And that's not what I'm trying to, trying to communicate. I, I have compassion for people that are in this situation. But a lot of times people will come up and they'll say, Pastor Mike, I need you to pray for me. And before they can even tell you what's going on, they're crying. They're bawling their eyes out and that kind of stuff. And I know immediately that they're dealing with fear. Because if the word is taking root in their heart, no matter what the situation is, there's nothing to cry about. Because the word's the answer. Now, you say that to some people, and and they'll think you just have no compassion at all. Folks, please understand, the compassion I have for you is to get you the answer. Not to cry on your shoulder or let you cry on mine. If that worked and if that helped, okay, we could do that. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, the Bible says to weep with them that weep. Yeah, it does. But it doesn't say leave them crying. So many times we're talking about a fear. A spirit of fear that the devil is trying to take you or keep you under bondage with. But the Bible says we have not been, a give, been given the spirit of fear. We've got power. You've got power because Christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law. You've got authority over anything and everything the devil tries to make you afraid of. I remember, I'll close with this. I remember Brother Hagin talking about after he was healed and he was in the ministry, he was out preaching in churches and so forth. He was... Uh, well, let's see, he was healed just a couple of days before he turned 17. By the time this happened, he was probably in his early 30s. So he's been in ministry for, uh, what would that be, 13 to 15 years, something like that. And he said this. He said, I always had, the, there was something that just nagged at me. It was, he said it was like a little puppy dog following me around everywhere I went. He said, was the, and, and what it was, was the fear that I was going to become paralyzed again. He said, but I was reading Brother, uh, Dr. Lillian Yeoman's book, Balm of Gilead. And if you don't have the book, let me recommend it to you. She's got three different books. Uh, I've seen somebody, I don't know who did it, but somebody consolidated them into one volume. Get her stuff. Oh, man, it's good. So good. But he said he was reading that. And there was something in one of those books that he said set him free from the fear of that thing. And he said this. He said, you may have heard him tell the story. He said, I got out of bed. He said, it was in the middle of the night. Everybody in the house is asleep. I'm in the parsonage uh, of a full gospel pastor whose church I'm preaching at. He said, I had to be quiet. He said, wood floors, you know, anything, any noise you make would just ring through the house. He said, I got out of bed and danced as quiet as I could in my stocking feet. He said, I kicked at the devil, literally kicked at the devil and kicked him out of the room. Over and over and over again. He said, devil, you've been trying to keep me afraid of this thing for 13 or so years. I'm not afraid anymore. Folks, the entrance of God's word gives light. Light meaning knowledge that you don't have to be afraid anymore. He said, from that day on, he never had the fear of that thing returning. Folks, sometimes you have to deal with the fear. It's not just the sickness, it's the fear associated with it. Might be fear of something else. Might be fear of not having enough. Fear of God not meeting your needs. There's a lot of scriptures in, the, in this 28th chapter that we could have looked at that had to do with physical and natural provision. 
But that wasn't our subject. That wasn't our topic. But it works the same way. Just alike. Just alike. There's nothing incurable with God. There's nothing that you need to be afraid of. Because the curse of the law has been dissolved. It's impossible for those that are in Christ Jesus to operate under the curse of the law. Yeah, but then Pastor Mike, why is this thing attacking my body? That's all it is. It's an attack. I, I said I'd close with that. Can I close with this instead? It's, hey, it's been two weeks since this morning. You know, Except for this morning, it's been two weeks since I preached. I got a lot of stuff stored up. I'm usually operating on two or three days. Now I'm operating on two weeks. I love this new commercial. Relatively new. I don't know how long it's been out. Maybe a month or so. And, of course, it has to be a beer commercial, you know. But it's this English guy that comes on this, it comes up on this other guy standing outside on the sidewalk wanting to go into a club, but there's a sign on the door. And he says, uh-oh, they put up a sign. Then it shows a picture of the sign, you know, keep out, authorized personnel only or something like that. And he says, capital letters mean business. But then he says this, here's the part of it I really like. He said this, he said, or maybe it's just nature's way of weeding out the timid. I love that. Because I can tell you this, the attacks of the devil are Satan's way of weeding out the timid. Over and over and over again, the Bible says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man will do to me. Over and over and over again, it says, greater is he that is in you than he that's in the world. Over and over again, it says that God has given us authority over the devil. And what we say determines what we will have there's nothing in the world there's nothing in this world or in this life for you to be afraid of i don't care what the doctor's diagnosis is i don't care how serious it is i don't care how much time he says you've got left there is nothing incurable there is nothing too hard there is nothing that you need to be afraid of because christ has redeemed you from the curse of the law he dissolved the curse for you let's pray father thank you so much for your word thank you that it's true thank you that we are redeemed have been redeemed, not going to be redeemed, not hoping for you to take some further action. But Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He was made a curse for us. We know that because he hung on the tree and that was a part of what you said in the scripture. Thank you, Father, that he did that so that the natural blessings of Abraham would come upon us, which they have, we believe they have by faith, and so that the promise of the Spirit could be received by us. That promise came through Jesus, your Son. We therefore declare, Father, that since we are Christ, we are Abraham's seed and heirs of the promise. The curse of the law has been dissolved, done away with, removed once and for all for us. Therefore, Father, we declare that by the stripes of Jesus we are healed. We're not going to be healed. We are healed. Just as we were made righteous by his sacrifice, we've been made the healed of God. So we refuse to be afraid. Satan... We serve notice upon you. We know from the word of God. And therefore we believe God. That there is nothing that you can put upon us. That can remain. There is nothing that you can do to us. Of which we are afraid. Or of which we need be afraid. Because we have been redeemed. From the curse of the law. We're in Christ Jesus. Therefore we are your masters. And we declare that by faith we are free from sickness and disease. Every sickness and every disease. And we refuse to fear. In Jesus' precious name. If you agree with that, say amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Have a great week. Hope to see you Wednesday night. Amen.